I never wanted my brother to look at me and wish that he had the things that I had and the opportunities that I had and say that he would do more with it. It forced me to think differently about how I wanted to operate. I get a lot of comments sometimes about my work ethic or how I think or how I operate. If we have the opportunity to see and we have the opportunity to breathe and we have the opportunity to wake up, let's go to work. Let's operate in a way that people would look at and want to emulate. Why would you operate or do or think any differently? As a division manager with Cutco Vector, Ben Jackson is a role model for many others. Ben's first role model was his brother, Brett, who was diagnosed with a severe brain tumor at age four. Watching Brett deal with his challenges provided a perspective for Ben that has helped him overcome any difficulty in his own life. Now, in his role leading others, Ben helps provide this same perspective for the people that he leads. By changing our perspective, we can truly change our lives. Ben Jackson explains this concept in this inspiring conversation. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome, everybody. I am here today with Ben Jackson, the Coastal Division Manager for Vector Marketing and Cutco. Ben has worked in the Cutco Vector organization since 2007 and has had tremendous success at every level of the business. Check out this track record. He was a $15,000 fast starter when he began the job. He has been a college All-American with the company. He has set push period records in the Eastern region as a sales rep. He was a two-time branch manager, finishing number 13 and number four in the nation during those two summers during college. He was the right-hand man for Trey Ketchum in uh, the Atlanta pilot office, and they experienced over 100% growth in that summer and set the SC2 push record for the Eastern region. Ben saved over $100,000 during his years of college before graduation from his Cutco Vector experience and from Wise Investing. In 2012, he graduated magna cum laude from Southern Methodist University, which is in Dallas, with a finance major and econ minor. At that point, he chose to stay with Cutco as a career. We'll uh, talk a little bit about why in uh, that process a little bit later on today. He was the Silver Cup 
new district manager in the company, number one during his first eight months, and then was over $1.2 million in sales in his first full year with the company. It was not long after that that Ben was promoted to run the coastal division in January of 2015. His division encompasses parts of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. He lives in the Atlanta area with his wife, Catherine, and two dogs. He also owns and operates a commercial real estate business as well as his Cutco business. So well-diversified, incredibly successful. And check this out, everyone. Ben Jackson is only 30 years old right now, already a prolific achiever in Vector and in life. I'm really excited to have you here today, Ben. Thanks for making time for the podcast. Thanks for allowing me on. It's good to be here. All right. Well, let's uh, hear a little bit about you. And I know, Ben, that you have had some experiences in your personal life before Cutco that were truly transformational and have sort of shaped how you view life and how you view your experiences. And so I want to get into that and just start by letting you share a little bit about uh, yourself as you grew up. Yeah, I'll share a, a little bit of background. I think uh, kind of my family and, and also a little bit about my backstory, I think would be beneficial to uh, to share. So I'll start with my, my parents. And Dan, I didn't mention this to you very much, but I think as I was thinking about a couple of things that I thought might be beneficial to share, my background for my, my mom and my dad, and then a little bit about my brother and also some adversity that I went through when I was coming out of, out of high school. So my mom and my dad, two totally different ends of the spectrum. Uh, my mom worked for Hewlett-Packard for 30 years. Uh, she retired in 2004 when they merged with Compaq, took an early retirement package, and then went to work some with my dad. But I saw my mom growing up in life. All I remember about my mom was she was always listening to voicemails, and she was always getting on a plane, and she didn't really have control of her schedule. She was uh, successful at Hewlett-Packard. As a, as a female in the 80s and 90s and kind of grown up in that world, she had to work really, really hard to build you know, what she had. But I, I saw that from when I was born and kind of going through, I was born in 1990. So up until 2004, from the first 14 years of my life, my mom was not around for, for everything, right? She, you know, she did her best to, to be there, but it was almost like when she was there, she was still in another place mentally. So I saw, I saw that uh, growing up and uh, it wasn't ever a, an issue of love or support. My mom was always, if I needed her, she would find a way uh, to, to be there. But I, I knew that she was working really hard for her, for her business. So I saw her work ethic and I think I developed a lot of that. Uh, the health habits that she had, the work ethic that she had in, in, in work, I think I developed and took a lot of that from her. My dad owns a, a real estate, he's a real estate attorney. So he owns, owns a practice and he's been a real estate attorney for, I don't know his current practice, how long he's had it for, but ever, I mean, coming out of law school, had a couple of years span where he wasn't in that field, but I mean, it's been, he's 70. So, I mean, probably 40, 40 years he's had this current practice. Mm -hmm. But it's as a real estate attorney, uh, I saw my dad own his own business, be able to make his own schedule, be there a lot for my sports and practices and all those things. But also, you know, controlling his schedule, uh, I saw that. But then in 2007, when the financial crisis hit and the, it affected the housing market uh, pretty substantially, 
uh, his business was heavily affected. So, you know, I, I had the background of seeing my mom in corporate America, my dad running his own business, but the ups and downs that came, you know, with that process. Both my parents worked hard and, and I, I grew up uh, having the opportunity to go to a school called Wesleyan. It was a small private high school. I went there from when I was three years old until I graduated. And there were a lot of people that I went to school with that did not have parents that both parents that worked as hard as, as what I had. So I think that was a little uh, unique from the school that I went to. You know, a lot of them, the husband worked, the mom didn't work. So that was a little different for me, right. uh, having that background. Then, then I think about my brother. My brother, Brett is his name. I was either six weeks or six months old when this happened, but he was diagnosed with a brain tumor when he was four years old. Uh, that year, my I, I heard a lot about this story growing up about dealing with adversity, and it became one of those things in my life where something bad happened. You know, my parents would always bring up the adversity that my brother had dealt with and that we had dealt with as a family. My, our house burnt down when I was just born, like six weeks or six months old. And my brother got diagnosed with a brain tumor in my first year of our life. So, uh, (laughs) you know, it always went back to something bad would happen. And and my mom or my dad would always bring these things back into perspective about like, it could be worse, right? It could could always be worse. And so my brother was diagnosed with this brain tumor when he was four, four and a half years old. And he was given at the time about six months to live. Uh, So he wasn't supposed to be able to make it. But my... My parents have a lot of resilience and they do not take no for an answer. Uh, they found a surgeon in Toronto that would conduct the surgery. And there was a very strong chance of him not being able to make it through that surgery if things didn't go right. But luckily, they removed 70% of the, of the tumor. And it's, a lot of it was in his pituitary and some of it they couldn't get out, but it hasn't grown. He and I left for college in 2008. When I graduated from high school, he went to Auburn. So he had been in community college for four years when I was in high school from 2004 to 2008. And then he he graduated, uh, you know, this past year. So 2020. So the guy's in college for 16 years, right? So that gives you an idea of the type of persistence and resilience that my brother has. And I I spoke at his his graduate, we put put a, you know, COVID, we wanted to have a massive party for him, but he is beloved by a lot of people in our community, but you know we couldn't do anything massive. I think it was about 35 people. And I spoke at his uh, his luncheon that we did at Auburn, and I just talked about him being my hero. And you know, I, I had the opportunity to grow up and experience what it was like to really struggle on a day to day basis, from crossing the street to use you know using a cane to walking through a restaurant to you know, this thing, the things that we take for granted, you know, people picking on him as a, you know, middle school, you know, high school, being in high school, being different, right? And, uh, you know, it forced me to grow up. It forced me to look at my life differently and appreciate the opportunities that I had and the, you know, the ability to play sports and the ability to see. And, you know, a lot of the things that I think people my age when you're in middle school and high school kind of growing up really take for take for granted and don't really appreciate the things that I think we have it forced me to to think differently of, about some of those things so is his vision impaired his it, tremendously he can he can see maybe 
I don't know, maybe 10, 15% of what we can see. Yeah. I mean, he, he can see a little bit, uh, but it's not much. Uh, he's, wow. yeah. And Visually, many, vision, many. Vision's impaired. Uh, his whole right side of his body is pretty weak. He walks with a cane. He has a, a support brace for his right side of his foot to kind of keep it more straight. But, you know, the things that the eyesight and that type of, he, he can, you know, you, you hear a lot of the, if some things go down, people in our, in our brain, we find a way to uh, supplement that with other parts of our brain. And so his hearing is amazing. He's very intelligent. He had a stroke when he was 21. Uh, I found him when I was going to the gym and my mom had dropped him off and they had gone out of town. And a little bit later on that day, I went to pick him up and I found him at 21 years old. I'm 17 at the time, you know, driving, I've, I've been driving for like, you know, six months or whatever. I go to the gym and I find him in the locker room, like, uh, drooling at the mouth, eyes rolled back. I mean, very bad state. He had a stroke uh, at the gym and, and made it to the locker room. But I took him to the hospital and, and he, he was in ICU for, I think, 10 or 11 days during this time period. And that we didn't know if he was going to make it through that, that experience. And uh, luckily he did. He, he made it through, but his speech was very impaired uh, coming out of that for stroke victims. I'm, I'm not sure if you've had any personal experience with that, but speech is, is typically very impaired. So a lot of speech therapy that came out of that. So, you know, if he has a lot of energy, you can understand him. But as soon as he gets a little bit more tired later on in the day, it gets harder and harder to understand him now. He had a, another stroke when he was in college. He was found out for about eight I think it was like 17 or 18 hours. Uh, he was on the ground in his apartment. Uh, he, he lives by himself, by the way. It's crazy. Uh, he lives by, by himself in Auburn. We have people that go check on him every day, but he wants freedom. And my mom goes down there to Auburn as much as he possibly can. Right now he's in Atlanta, but you know, luckily a friend found him and got him to the hospital and same deal. He was in ICU for another, I think 10 or 10 or 11 days and made it through that. I mean, he's a warrior. He's uh, he fights fights through and the thing that's an amazing is that you, know, you ask him how, how he's doing and if he can talk he's going to say he's awesome you know he he just appreciates life and he he's thankful to be here and he sheds a lot of perspective i think to people who think they have something going on and think they have toughness or adversity in their life that don't really know what adversity or experiencing that is even like and it it definitely put a outlook for me on how I, how I view adversity. And, you know, at first that took me a lot of patience to develop with people when they felt like they had a hard time or they felt like something was not going on in their life the way that they wanted it to be. I, I had a really hard time being patient uh, with people sometimes, but, you know, it started with me. I learned a lot of lessons growing up uh, being around that and, you know, maybe at first didn't operate or think the way that I, I should have, right? I, I learned a lot earlier on and it matured me, I think, uh, earlier on than I think a lot of people. So uh, that's a little bit about my family. And, yeah, what a, what a story, Ben. And that the yeah. perspective that somebody would develop being around a situation yeah. like that for all of your, you know, your life, all of your formative years, it's really incredible to, to think about just the, you know, the perspective that came about for you because of that. Yeah, I, I think I get a, a lot of 
comments sometimes about my my work ethic or how I think or how I operate. And to me, it's just why would you operate or do or think any differently? You know, it's like if we have the opportunity to see and we have the opportunity to breathe and we have the opportunity to wake up, let's let's go to work. Let's operate in a way that's that's uh, people would look at and and want to emulate, right? And and for me, the person that I never wanted to look at me and and think I would do more with their skills, their eyesight, the things that they have. I never wanted my brother to look at me and be. I never wanted him to look at me and and wish that he had the things that I had and the opportunities that I had and and say that he would do more with it. I just that's not what I wanted my life to be around around my family. So mm, awesome. it, uh, it forced me to to think differently about how I wanted to operate. Awesome, Ama- amazing story, Ben. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. Talk to us about uh, baseball and your time playing baseball yeah. at a high level. I know that was also important to you. Yeah, so I I was a big baseball player my whole life. Played very competitively my whole life, starting from when I could swing a bat, three four years old, until I I graduated from high school. From twelve till seventeen eighteen, I played on some pretty high level and, and nationally ranked uh, travel teams. And the goal was to be able to play college baseball at a high level. And, you know, if I could take it hard, farther than that, be able to play uh, at a higher level than that. If I could play in, in the majors, it, you know, that was uh, one of my goals. And that's one of the things that I trained for and kept me thinking. I was 16 years old and I was told that, hey, you've got good skills. I was an outfielder. I played outfield. I was quick. I could hit, but I wasn't big enough. So I was told that. If I wanted to be able to play at the level that I wanted to be able to play at, I would need to get bigger. So I was, uh, I guess at that point in time, probably 6'1", 6'2", 148 pounds. <laughs> so I, uh, I, was, I was skinny. And uh, my junior year, in the fall of my junior year, I made a decision to get really serious before baseball season about you know, getting bigger. So I got a trainer and luckily enough, my, my family supported that. That fall until my until my spring season was going to start for my school, I put on forty pounds in, in a little less than six months. So it was like five and a half months. I went from one forty eight to one eighty eight. I was eating six thousand calories a day. <laughs> it was crazy. I, I would eat. My trainer told me to eat a pound of steak every night. So I cooked, you know, either my mom or myself, and and I did a lot. I learned how to cook doing this, but. I would eat a pound New York strip every single night, a baked potato every single night. I would eat a Moe's burrito after school. I would eat, you know, it was regimented, 6,000 calories a day. <laughs> uh, track everything. And, you know, I, I did it. I gained 40 pounds and I got ready for that season. And I, I was ready, right? And I had a couple of great games coming out of the gates and, uh, you know, was, was on the track that I wanted to be on uh, for that season. I was pitching to a buddy after school one day. Well, after practice one day, we stayed late, had some extra batting practice. And uh, I, was, I threw a ball to him. We were about 15, 18 feet away, pretty close, not very, not very far in the cage. And I didn't get behind the screen. There's usually a screen. I didn't get behind it. I was just kind of sitting there. I don't know why. But he hit it, and it hit me right here. It came back. It hit me right here in the face. So I broke uh, four bones here, five down the side of my face. Oh, right under your eye, next to your nose. Yeah. So basically, my whole cheekbone. So right here, I woke up about a minute and a half, two minutes. Now I don't know, a minute and a half or so after I, I basically got knocked out. You know, for a minute and a half or so, 
I think my buddy thought I was dead. I was bleeding out of my eyes, my nose, my mouth when I woke up. And, you know, I could, I could see blood all over the place. Well, I kind of get to a place of like where I can like do something and I walk right inside of this gym and I look in the, in the mirror, like immediately when you walked in the bathroom, right? And I passed out because it looked like a, a baseball. I passed out again. It looked like a baseball literally had just crushed my face in. That's, that's kind of what I remember about this experience. A little bit later, I wake up. I'm in, I'm in an ambulance, get rushed to the hospital. The next day, I get plastic reconstructive surgery. So the, they did the, when they did the surgery, they basically had to go down through my eye and up through my mouth to be able to do it so there's not scarring on my face. And so all this is titanium plates and screws. My whole cheekbone on the left, on my left side is uh, rebuilt titanium plates and screws. So all this is uh, reconstructed. And, you know, it was one of those things where when they did the surgery, they thought, but they didn't know for sure if I would be able to see out of my left eye. So, and, and what the timing would be like, because all the nerve endings when you did that basically got cut off in the surgery. So I had to relearn how to see again. And, and I didn't know if I would be able to out of my left eye or what, but I had to relearn how to see again. It took me about eight, nine weeks to be able to get to a point where I could control my eye muscles in my left eye. And that for me was almost like a glimpse of what my brother experienced every single day of his life. Right. And, you know, for me to be able to go through that and experience like not being able to see, you know, I, I could see it on my right eye, but I had to control both eyes at the same time. So I was literally walking around looking like this, like trying to see out of one eye and keep them level and, you know, it was almost like a glimpse for me of what my what my brother experienced, and uh, you know, went through every single day, except no sight and no no end in sight, right? So I was very frustrated. Uh, I lost out of the forty pounds I gained. I think I lost like thirty pounds of them, and in, in the next you know couple of weeks, four or five weeks, because I couldn't eat at the same level, I couldn't work out at the same level. I was depressed. I was very frustrated. And, you know, it, it really put things into perspective for me about, you know, like how I treated baseball and how I operated because for the first time I had some time to think uh, a little bit differently. And, you know, I, I got back. Uh, this is kind of crazy. I got back and, you know, it was probably nine, 10 weeks after the injury where I got back and I started playing again. Maybe maybe 11, 12 weeks. I could see after eight, we started retraining again for maybe two, three weeks. So I started playing again, maybe after 11 or 11 or 12 weeks. Well, my third game back, I take a, I played, I was playing center field and I take a short hop. I got to throw somebody out of the plate and I felt something in my arm really like something did not click. It didn't feel right. I didn't say anything, but I went to the doctor the next day and, and I had really bad tendonitis and I had, I had torn something in my shoulder because I hadn't been doing very much training wise and I tried to come back full throttle. So I'm out another eight weeks from this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you got to be kidding me. Like everything that I've been working for with baseball, everything that I wanted to do or, or so I thought I wanted to do up until that point in my life, uh, I felt like was being taken away from me. I felt like I wasn't going to be able to achieve at the level that I, I wanted to. And, you know, that's the, the point in time where as I was going through that experience, I, 
I decided that I wanted to do something and I was sick of laying around the house and doing rehab and everything I was doing. And I wanted to get a job and I wanted to, I wanted to make some money. If I wasn't going to be able to play baseball, I needed to do something. My wife will tell you this. It, it drives me nuts to sit down on the couch and watch TV. Like I just, <laughs> I can't, I need, I need activity. I need to be doing something constantly. So that's when I started selling Cutco and uh, we can talk about that more in a little bit, but yeah. Wow. So about my, my adversity, nothing compared to my brothers, but a, a little bit about what I, what I went through. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that your experience with the baseball injury was probably at least a measure easier for you to handle because you had seen your brother go through all of the things that he had gone through. Sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the the surgeons that we talked to in preparation for the surgery, I had had a, a tubing incident about a year before this happened where I, somebody had hit me on the top left of my same side of my face, but right here and uh, had to meet with a plastic, couple plastic surgeon before. And the one that I had met with ended up doing my other surgery. But one of the things that he told me when we were meeting with him, that was that he wanted to cut my, my, uh, my basically do an incision from ear to ear and peel back my face to do the surgery. (laughs) So my brother has a scar from ear to ear because when they did the brain surgery, that's what they had to do. And that's, I mean, like I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm crying with my dad when he was telling me about this because like, I'm getting a little piece of, of what my brother experienced. Right. And, and like kind of going through, going through that. So it was interesting. Wow. Well, you know, knowing the incredible success that you've had with Cutco, I I would hope that every Cutco manager or rep listening to this could put a little bit of perspective on whatever adversities or challenges they've faced or they might be facing right now today. Cause uh, this stuff is incredible. And to have experienced all these things, you know, as a youngster, as a child, really, that's a difficult experience for sure, a difficult set of experiences to have had. And I know that they've really shaped how you viewed your opportunities in life. Sure. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about your path with Cutco. How did you end up finding this job? Yeah, so I had uh, three buddies that were working with Cutco from my school that I saw a little bit about, you know, their experience, told me a little bit about it. and. Uh, it's it's funny. I, I I don't know if I got a random call and, and was recommended at some point or not. I never answered the phone if I did, but I ended up actually because I knew that they were doing, I found the number online, called and, and scheduled an interview myself. And uh I don't know if you'd call that a recommendation, but I actually called into the found the number, called the office and uh I was sitting upstairs in my house after I called them and scheduled the interview. I went down and told my mom I'd got a job interview. She's like, what? You know, because I was mowing lawns basically and, uh, you know, around baseball. So it was a little different. I had never had a real, uh, you know, interview before. So, yeah. Well, what stands out from your early experiences uh, with the company? What stands out? I think, you know, right out of the gates, I didn't really know how to think much about the position because I'd never had another job. So I literally just did exactly what my manager taught me to, to do. So I, I think, you know, I, I had the skill set of uh, being able to be really coachable. I would say is is a way that I would be described as a as an athlete, and kind of took everything to to heart. So I just tried to treat the job the exact same way that I approached sports. I had a little 
you know, hiatus with baseball where I couldn't play as much. I was just doing rehab and had a little extra time. So what stands out, I think right off the bat was just the importance of being coachable. I sold, you know, about $15,000 in my first 10 days on the job. And I didn't think it was great. I didn't think it was really good. I just did it. I just, you know, focused on following the program and getting around people that could be good coaches and following what they, what they said to do. So, you know, I had my first glimpse of making my own money. And uh, if you ask my parents growing up, I like to, you know, hold on to as much money as I possibly could. <laughs> so I started saving money and making money and got a, a little bit addicted to that. Uh, at the beginning, that summer, I worked like six weeks, sold 30 grand, made $10,000 and saw it as an opportunity to really start uh, building a, a future financially for, for myself. And, you know, it was a, it was an opportunity that I wanted to take advantage of. I didn't know the timeline or the span, but I knew it was something I was could be pretty good at, and I wanted to get around the right people that can help me be successful with it. Yeah. Well, there's a financial training, sort of a very fundamental financial training that I like to provide for people that, uh, that I work with. And one of the first points that I offer is to use your opportunities. Sure. It's, you know, like you've got opportunities in front of you to actually make the most of them. So you went out, you made 10 grand your first summer, you took it up an even higher notch your second summer, then you crushed it as a branch a couple times. Like you actually really utilized your opportunities during college. What do you think uh, enabled you to succeed at such a high level during those years? I think the ability to, to be around people that pushed me and I wanted to to be like uh, I'll mention you know two people but while I was in school you know the the first one obviously Trey Ketchum my division manager at the time was a huge impact on me and you know I, I saw Trey and the things that he had and the type of work ethic that he had it and I was able to to bond with him and and he definitely took me under his wing to be successful and it really focused on developing uh opportunities and and had a good mentor to be able to do that from i also had a a buddy chris reen that uh was about a year ahead of me i was an assistant manager while he was a branch then i became a first-time branch while he had a second time branch we sold together on breaks and you know we were able to compete and work together throughout college and you know people like that that you want to get around to your circle of influence is, is key. You know, I, I didn't understand the importance of circle of, of influence at the time. Uh, but now that I look back on it and, uh, you know, think about some of the people that I had around me, you know, the coaches, uh, you know, Scott Dennis, Amar Gervais, our region manager and, and region sales director at the time, you know, just having people like that, that I was able to look up to and, uh, aspire to be more like that, that uh, were able to be approached and willing to answer questions and willing to go out of their way to, to support up and coming uh, individuals. I think, uh, you know, not understanding how important that was at the time, but now looking back at it, when I think about circle of influence, those were some, some people that really definitely helped to influence me at that stage. Yeah. What made you choose to stay with Cutco when you graduated from SMU? Yeah. So when I graduated from SMU, I definitely was very serious about interviewing around and looking at some different opportunities. Uh, I had a, a, you know, one of the things that I was always passionate about was owning my own business. I, I really wanted to run my own business. So I had a, 
a business plan built for a, a company in Dallas that I was considering starting. So that's one of the things that I, I had worked pretty seriously on, you know, as a, as a junior, you know, junior in college, senior fall semester, had that built out to, you know, a program that I, I thought and a business that I thought could be very successful. And I still do. I also interviewed with 16 other companies out of the 16 other companies, all of them offered me second round interviews and uh, all of the companies I decided to, you know, really pursue interviewing with at a higher level, all, all of them offered me six figure income opportunities my first round of school. But the main reason I decided to stay with Cutco when it came down to it, I looked at companies in, in uh, New York, I looked at companies in Dallas, and I looked at companies in Atlanta. I, I majored in finance and had had a pretty good GPA in school and had made some great connections. So I, I had some really good opportunities coming out of college. Uh, but the main reasons that I decided to stay with Cutco were, were really simple. You know, number one was the opportunity to have autonomy and build my own business. Technically, it wasn't my product, but it was my own business in the way that I chose to operate it. Uh, so that was that was something that was important to me. Um, the second thing that you know that I really loved was the upward advancement and the upward mobility and opportunity for higher pay very quickly. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of companies, a lot of positions out there. I, I looked this morning and the uh, the typical pay rate increase of the average employee across America is 3.1% per year. So, you know, I, I wanted something where I was able to control my income and upward mobility and advancement opportunities. And I felt like I had that here. And then uh, the third one was the the programs and the people, you know, the, the type of company that I was going to be able to work around. I felt like I had a a good group of people that I could uh, that I could work with and and be able to build towards and uh, then obviously we we know our our products are phenomenal and uh, the fact that I grew up in a in a family where I saw my dad's real estate you know business as an attorney go up and down and I thought about okay well it's not like in in uh, in the knife industry it's not like that's going to go up and down people are always going to eat right 2007 2008 recession hits Cutco goes up. You know, pandemic, coronavirus hits, ban, Cutco sales go up. So it doesn't matter whether things are good or bad in, in our market, our industry right now, we're going to sell a lot of Cutco. We're going to sell a lot of kitchen knives. So I liked that it was a, essentially like a recession proof industry. And, you know, you could almost make the case that, hey, when there, when there is a recession and when things are bad for other businesses, Cutco is even better. And so I, I liked, I liked some of those things. Yeah. A lot of the same things that I looked at, certainly when I got out of college and thought about working here as well, that uh, that autonomy to me was always a really big one. You know, I just like you, I, I like to do things and I like to do, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, basically, right? And, yeah. I, and we have an opportunity in Cutco to be able to have a pretty good degree of that flexibility. I mean, there are demanding times a year where you have to bust your butt and work really hard and a lot of people are counting on you to do that, you know, and I think that comes with the territory anywhere. But uh, for the most part, throughout a given year, there is that great degree of uh, of autonomy that's that's available. And you know, and when I started, in terms of upward mobility, it was really like the sky's the limit. I mean, it was a lot different than when you got out of college, and the company was a lot more developed. You know, back when I started, you know, there was opportunity everywhere. Sure. But what's always remained the same is that when you perform, the company creates opportunities for you. 
right? Like you're a classic example of that in that you've been able to stay in Atlanta where Trey is, but that Scott and Amar, your leaders, right, carved out an opportunity for you to be able to have your own division and have plenty of, you know, space to be able to develop people into and and to thrive. And, And in the meantime, Trey's thriving as well, right? So it's pretty cool to see that uh, opportunity gets created here in Vector for people who do the right things as you have. Now, you, you've you succeeded at such a high level, Ben, as a manager. I mean, Silver Cup right out of the gate in, in the uh, new DM category, which is an eight-month competition, and then over $1.2 million your first full year in your office and you know became a division manager within four or five years. I think it would be helpful for people to get inside of what are the leadership qualities of Ben Jackson? Like what strengths have you brought to be able to succeed at such a high level as a leader within Cutco? Yeah, I think number one is systemization. You know, what are, what are things that as a district or a branch manager, what are the potential opportunities for struggle that a manager can have? And doing everything that I can as a leader to systematize and, and make those things simpler and easier that it's plug and play that, you know, if somebody can follow a program, then they can execute the business. I think that's the first one that I, and I think the people on our division would definitely, you know, pinpoint as something that I think helps our team to be more successful. Second, I think I, I bring a, a mentality of success and a habits of success that you know, not everybody has. And, you know, I think uh, the first right off the bat, I think for people that have not come up into my organization, I think that's tough for them to experience at the beginning because it's different. And, but the people that have, have worked with me and worked side by side with me for years, they know how I think and how I operate and, and what I expect. What are the differences in your mentality that you feel like you would underscore? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to some of the background things that I talked about, right? Like, uh, you know, what what is a real problem? <laughs> let's let's start there, you mm-hmm. know, because I, I think uh, as managers in our business or as an individual, sometimes we think that we have a problem, and in reality, that's not really a real problem, and and we sometimes spend a lot more energy thinking about that thing than taking action on what needs to happen to impact or change it. So, you know, I'm a believer that we only have so much energy, right, in a day or only have so much energy ourselves. And are we doing things that fuel that energy? Are we doing things that, you know, are going to make us make us uh, more successful as individuals so that in turn, as leaders, we can give more to other people? I'm a believer that you got to protect yourself before you protect anybody else, because if you don't protect yourself, then you don't have anything to give to anyone else. And I think it's really easy as a leader, especially when you're a new leader, to try you know, to be successful, to give, 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 give. And people end up breaking down and they're not able to do that from a long-term perspective. So you know, teaching people how to create the right habits for themselves to operate more effectively so that in turn, they can, they can teach other people how to do that and be better leaders for their people, I think is key. Yeah, that was, uh, that was some good good insight right there for sure the whole idea of uh fueling yourself and making sure that uh that you are putting yourself in the best position to be able to give leadership and give influence and give energy 
to others. I think that's something that a lot of people grapple with. I know it's one one that I've grappled with for many years, and it's it's always been been a challenge for sure. But uh, it's good to hear you describe that as an important part of how you think and your philosophy. Tell me more about some of the strengths that you feel you bring as a leader, Ben. I mean, just from a program side in our in our Cutco business, and I know some people will be listening to this, and some people you know inside our business, some people outside. But I think about talent acquisition and what we call our PR program. Right, uh, the strength of our PR culture, our PR programs, and our team builder programs, and our division that we bring to the Eastern region and across the company are huge. Uh, there's things that Trey and I developed back in 2011 on the team builder front uh, when I was his pilot sales manager. That we still get calls from people trying to ask how to do an aspect of something we started talking about nine years ago. And, <laughs> you know, you, you understand that too. So, you know, I, I think are we able to look into the future and think about where our business is going and are we? adapting today with where that's headed or are we still trying to you know just focus on getting the immediate business of what what needs to happen today so you know my my mind today is thinking about being successful not just today and this week but what are the programs that we need to be developing to be more successful you know two three four five years out and what things are coming and how can we get on the forefront of those things uh, to be not just successful today, but in the future and be on the forefront of that. Because in any business, adaptation and the ability to adapt and the quick the quickness in which you can do that with is everything. Yeah. What is your favorite pet project or innovation that you're hatching for the future right now? My favorite pet project <laughs> or innovation. I mean, I'll just like one thing that is immediate to our business. And I was talking about our PR task force call this morning. You know, we're talking about the importance of the social media recruiting assistant program. Well, for me, I'm not going to be able to run every aspect of the SMRA program myself. Uh, so, you know, the first thing that I knew I needed to do was I needed to pinpoint somebody for to lead this in our division. So, last January, I started uh, thinking about who could be who could be potential people that could develop into a head of our SMRA program. Right when I when I knew how big this was going to be and how important it was going to be, it wasn't something I started talking about and thinking about at the end of the summer. It was something I was thinking about last January. And okay, who are the, you know, who are the three or so people that I could see developing into this? Mm-hmm. And then kind of watching and building relationships with those people. And you know, by the end of the summer, it was clear who it needed to be. So you know, my past thirty day conversations have been developing that person into our divisional trainer for the SMRA program. And I know if I can simplify the training process for our district managers and then not have to worry about running the training and I can just have somebody run the training, it makes it a heck of a lot easier for them to build the SMRA program. Because now all they have to do is run an interview and get people into it. So if I have her running a a training seminar essentially every week, whether it's from three people or first one to run it, it was two people, then three people. And then this past week we had eight people. And if we want to consistently be recruiting SMRAs, and that's something we're telling our managers to do, are we providing ways that are going to make it easier for them to do that? Or are we just talking about that they should do that? So, you know, I think that's that's one thing that, you know, for me on on what I view as the most important up and coming program that we have, that's that's something I'm definitely taking action on. And 
I know I'm not going to be able to run all those training seminars myself. So, you know, I have weekly calls and, and, and work with her that uh, we're doing to move that program forward and tying in our district managers to that process as well. So, you know, we're in phase, I call it phase one of that right now, or where will we be next summer on that and, and moving that forward. So I would challenge our, our current division managers and district managers to think about what programs are they developing, you know, in their SMRA and social media recruiting assistant side. So that's one, you know, simple one, but I think it's the most important one right now. Yeah, that's a great one to hear for sure. What does the future hold for Ben Jackson, Coastal Division, business and personal? So, you know, right now I'm thinking about, we have a concept of in our organization 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. So uh, Coastal 1.0 for, was from when I took over until $5 million. So we took it over. It was about a $2 million vision. Uh, this year we'll do over $5 million. So you know, our, our objective is to be able to take that to, you know, the next 2.0 is 5.0 million to seven and a half million. And then 3.0 is seven and a half to $10 million. And, you know, our, our objective is, you know, are we operating and, and uh, doing things that are more in line with the 3.0 and the $10 million division? Uh, or are we operating right now in the 2.0, you know, type of division? So, you know, I, everything that we do right now is, is developing systems and programs to be able to develop our organization to a $10 million division. So on the, on the Cutco side, that's, uh, that's the focus. And then, you know, for my, uh, for my commercial real estate business, it's, you know, we want to acquire one, one new property every year. And, you know, we focus on, uh, I think that the up and coming state of where things are going with the, commercial space. I, I think that anything over 3,000 square feet is not going to be as heavily rented in the future as, as uh, it has been in the past, which I kind of saw uh, a while ago. And when this happened, I think it uh, it made that even bigger. So we focus on you know 1,000 to 2,500 square foot spaces and acquiring buildings that enable us to be in that in that space. So I want to focus on acquiring one new building every year. So that's, it's something I spend probably 20, 30 hours a month on. It's not something that takes a lot of energy, but it creates passive income for me and enables me to develop that portfolio. Yeah. Outstanding. And, you know, the theme of our podcast is changing lives. And as you look into your future, you know, how do you aspire to change people's lives through what you're doing? Yeah, I think the you know the ability to impact people starts with how many people can you can you influence and how many people can you in our business touch, right? So, you know, in, in my division we have uh offices, you know, small section of, of Florida, South Carolina, a little bit of North Carolina and, and some of Georgia and we want to continue to recruit and, and bring people into our programs as, as much as possible. We recruit about 1,500 people this summer. And you know, we want to continue to take those numbers even higher. And I think with the virtual processes and programs that we have and the less barrier of entry for students to be able to work from their computer and train virtually, I think we're going to be able to continue to increase our recruiting numbers in the future. So uh, it starts there with uh, you know sharing our our opportunities with as many students as we possibly can in our territories. And, and then on the leadership Academy side, we have a program that uh, the leadership Academy program, and I know a lot of division managers run in our, 
in our country and in our in our company the ability there to be able to provide skills that can make them more marketable in anything that they do you know whether it's working with Cutco and and working with us for two three four years throughout college or you know developing opportunities that are going to make them more successful as engineers as lawyers as doctors in the futures as business owners and that program to me I look at that as the opportunity to, to create financial habits and professional and, and personal habits that will make them successful and more marketable in anything they do in the future. So I look at, okay, the ability to recruit and share our Cutco opportunity to make money. Uh, from there, it's uh, the next the next step for me is Leadership Academy and, and developing the next level of leaders in our organization and to create future future success in a lot of industries for those people in the future. That's great to hear, Ben. And you know, with the success that you have had and your incredible track record, I think it's only a matter of time before you're at the top of the division manager charts in Cutcoin Vector as well. I mean, it's cool to see your path as it uh, as it continues to evolve and form. Thanks, Dan. Um, yeah, yeah. Great stuff here today, Ben. I really appreciate uh, your time and hearing your story, I think is going to really help a lot of people put a perspective on the challenges in their life. I love when you said, what is a real problem? I think people can take that and put a perspective on everything, whether it be you know the challenges of 2020 uh, with the pandemic or any other adversities that come their way in life. I think they can get a lot out of this and they can remember you and your story. And so I really appreciate you making time for the podcast. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you having me. Awesome. That was Ben Jackson, everyone, a real superstar in the Cutco Vector business. I want to comment on a few things that came out during this conversation today. So first off, interesting to note the different paths with Ben's two parents. His mother worked for 30 years for Hewlett Packard, worked in a big company, took that path. His father started his own business, owned his own business, and took that path. One path Ben observed as one where there was less flexibility and you know opportunity was sort of a little slower to come by. The other path offered more autonomy and faster opportunity. And I just think that that is uh, something for everyone to consider where you fit in that in that spectrum. What path do you want to be on in life? It's, I'm not saying that one path is right and the other is wrong. They're different paths, and it's important to think about and ponder where you fall in that spectrum and you know what path do you feel like you most want to be on. In Cutco Vector, it's more of an entrepreneurial path where we have a little bit more choices about our, how we operate and our schedule. And one of the things I always like to say here is that your raise becomes effective when you do. In Cutco and Vector, your opportunity to advance and earn more is based on your own performance. And so it's a little bit more in your control. Naturally, the signature concept I feel like came out of this conversation was the idea of perspective and a perspective on the challenges and adversities that come our way. 2020 has been a unique year and there's been a lot of difficulty for a lot of people. And there have also been a lot of gifts. And regardless of how difficult some of the experiences have been, I think it's always possible for you to look and see that there are other people around that have had greater challenges, that have had more difficult challenges, and that are succeeding and doing well. 
And therefore, it's incumbent upon us to take responsibility for our own situation, focus on the things that are in our control, and do what we can to elevate ourselves despite challenge and adversity that may be around us. I think that applies in 2020 and every year all the time. Ben talked about some of his success factors, thinking differently, of course, that perspective, which I think enables you to have more confidence and enthusiasm on a daily basis, fueling himself to make sure that he was at his best to be able to bring his best to his people. And he used the word systemization in thinking about the challenges uh, of building a business and thinking about any sort of area of your business that you want to grow in finding the answers to the challenges that you face, which are always out there, and then implementing those answers, monitoring your results so you know what's working. This is what helps create a systematized process of growth and improvement. Of course, having the right people around to be able to fill different roles is critical as well. Ben talked about the evolution of his division going from 5 million, which is about what they'll do this year, to elevate that up to seven and a half and then 10 in the years ahead. Speaking from my own personal experience, my Cutco division went from five and a half million to eight million in one fell swoop in one given year. And the reason why that happened was we had the right people on the bus. We spent several years getting the right people into the right places. And then in that one year, everyone succeeded. Right. As a leader, you dig into each individual to help each individual fulfill their highest potential. When you have a lot of good people around you and then you get everyone succeeding, which sometimes happens in a person's second year or third year or fourth year as a manager, but there ultimately became this moment where everybody was succeeding. And my proudest moment in the business was a week where every single district manager and branch manager in my division had their best week of their career all in the same week. And that was where we broke through to the highest level and, uh, and had that evolution. And just think about how that might apply for you and your business, whether it's in Cutco or outside of Cutco. Do you have the right people around you? And are they all fulfilling their fullest potential? How can you help them to do that? That's what helps create a business of epic proportions. Grateful to Ben Jackson for being willing to share a lot about his story today. Hope you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it and hope you can remember it when you think about or encounter any challenge in your own life. Thanks for supporting the podcast, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, please consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player and hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 